0: One of the most clear and compelling voices across the wide landscape of personal and collective transformation is Dr. Julie Krull, author, mentor, and radio host whose superpowers of consciousness and creativity bring new insight to the journey of wholeness and healing. Julie hosts the weekly radio program and podcast, the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Her book, Fractured Grace, How to Create Beauty, Peace, and Healing for Yourself in the World, challenges an outdated worldview that has long fostered a sense of separation and fear among people and communities. Julie's passionate belief in connected consciousness embraces the core understanding that we are not separate from the creative intelligence that designed the universe. Join Aviv Shahar with Dr. Julie Kroll for All Things Connected.
1: Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration.
2: Imagine this. What would it be like to live so fully and completely in a flow state that the unified field is our default, our preferred and normal playground. This is the invitation our guest, Dr. Julie Kroll, makes in her book, Fractured Grace. Julie asks, is it possible to resolve the limitations and conflict of our dualistic nature and ignite an awakening that will evolve consciousness and create a new paradigm of our wholeness. Dr. Julie is a teacher, founding steward of the good of the whole, radio talk show host of the Dr. Julie show, All Things Connected, and author of Fractured Grace, How to Create Beauty, Peace, and Healing, for yourself and the world. Julie invites us to embody our highest creative potential and shift from the egocentric separation fantasy. Let me say this one again. Shift from the egocentric separation fantasy to a healthier soul-centric flow of resonance and coherence. She's a mentor for leaders and influencers, working toward whole systems change. Julie, thank you for joining us on this Portal's Discovery Conversation.
3: Thank you, Aviv. It's an honor to be here and a delight I've been looking forward to.
2: So you often begin your conversations on the Dr. Julie show, All Things Connected, by asking people what All Things Connected means for them. So I'm going to begin by asking you, what is the portal you're in at this time, and where do you find joy inside it?
3: What a beautiful question. I thought you were going to ask me, what does all things connected mean to you? You know, I've been in this liminal space the last 12 months, beginning last in 2021 from a space of COVID and 12 days of fever. I went into this different relationship with time-space that was different than the flow state and it was different from the mystical state. It was more of this embodied sense of nothingness and timelessness and spacelessness. So I've been in this portal playing for a good 12 months The last couple months, time, space has come back in and and tried to create structure and deadlines and projects and things moving forward, which has been really interesting. But the portal now of this really liminal space of pure potentiality has been really fun and creative and ripe. And also, instead of it being the space of creating as you take a step forward in real time, it's been now as if the steps are forming themselves ahead of me in this portal now. It's like, it's okay, just trust. And so I've moved from the liminal, ah, there's nothing there, take the step and trust to this really deep space of trusting and knowing I could even close my eyes or be blindfolded and those steps are appearing before me now not as I step but they're there which is exciting and a little less scary and really a beautiful space of even so as those steps appear before it's like used to be intuition you know you tune in and intuitively things would pop up but now it's a more state of that constant is already there and it's just this more embodied guidance rather than me looking for guidance or asking for guidance or tuning into that unified field it's now more of an embodied sense that is really fun it's yeah yeah, when you notice it it's really fun
2: and liminal is another word for portal and the way you describe this feels to me, has about it the sense, not so much of walking blind, but rather walking backward. So you see what appears in front of your eyes, because you're walking into a space that's unfolding and revealing itself in front of you as you enter that space. That's the sense of walking backward. And you also highlight in there a sense that it's not somewhere else. It's right here, right now. You're part of whatever it is the process as it manifests with guidance, intelligence, and discovery.
3: Yeah, it really is more of that within peace, too, which is really, you know, that embodied sense is a different relationship with the whole, with that unified field. It's nice.
2: So there are many aspects of fractured grace that I read (laughs) that I want to visit and your journey in it, and the way you tell the journey. But I'd like us to actually start with your show, The Dr. Julie Show, and where you have engaged in conversation with many leading thinkers over the last decade or so. What was, especially in the transformational space, what is the story of the show? How was it birthed?
3: Oh, that's a beautiful question. Thank you. And there's a funny birthing story about it. And then there's the process. I'll share both because I think they're really interesting because nine years ago now, probably 10 years ago right now, I was ignoring the universe and signs. So I'm working away and all of a sudden I'm just getting all these emails coming in saying, we want you to be a radio host, be your own talk show host. And I'm getting these emails and I'm just like, Throwing him in the trash, not thinking about having a radio show. It wasn't in my awareness. I thought there would be media in the future and I knew I would be speaking, but I never thought I'll have a radio show. So, literally, Aviv, I was ignoring and throwing in the trash. And one day I went into the office and on the answering machine. And back in the day when we had landline phones and answering machines, did we have a cell phone then? I don't even remember. But I go into the office and there's a message on my machine. And it was from a director that was doing a pilot show for the Oprah Winfrey Network. And they wanted me to be the guest expert that would follow them along on all of these episodes. And it was like, So bizarre and startling. Like, what? Like, number one, Oprah Winfrey Network? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, what is this? And here I am in the middle of Nebraska. You know, I don't think it says that on my website anywhere, but they found me in the middle of Nebraska. And all of a sudden, it was like, listen to these media invites. So I followed that thread and followed up with it and had some meetings. And at the same time, this radio invitation came in again and i listened and i trusted so there was the beginnings of the dr julie show all things connected now the fun journey part the evolution of it has been fascinating because in the beginning i was inviting these guest experts to come on and talk about unitive consciousness and you know all things connected and it was as if we had to prove this To the listeners. That's how it was inside of me. Like, let's help the audience really understand that all things are connected. And I would ask that question. And that question was if we were trying to prove it to the audience. And all of a sudden, the shift, and I'd have to go back and really feel into that. It'll be interesting for you to talk about your timeline when you might have sensed that. But one day it just occurred to me we're not proving this anymore everyone was coming on and going of course because it is you know what does all things connected mean to you well it's just the nature of reality it's just that you know and we weren't bringing science in we weren't having to prove things anymore it was just like of course all things are interdependent, interconnected. We have this unified field of consciousness, and life emerges and materializes from this new understanding of information at the center of our universe. And so once we got to that place, it was exciting, and the guests started changing, the conversations began to change, and it's just been a fun journey.
2: So you're exploring with your guests these themes of interconnection and creativity and consciousness and what is emerging at the convergence point of health and science and spirituality without needing to then prove it anymore and what are some of the key learnings that you are unfolding along the journey with your guests over this decade?
3: Well, I think that the most important piece is that we do now have science, every branch of science, you know, and looking at cosmology, evolution, biology, consciousness studies, developmental psychology, it's like all of them converge with the same story from all the different disciplines now, and really showing how this false belief in separation created the world as we know it that's literally breaking down. So the exciting thing is this breadth and depth of scientific wisdom that's now there in all of these different disciplines so that we can create this unitive narrative that it's time to really begin to rethink and reimagine Everything, our world as we know it, was built in this consciousness of separation. And it simply isn't true. You know, we're not separate from one another. We're not separate from the planet. We're not separate from all the inhabitants of the planet, but we're not separate from this creative, designing intelligence of the universe. You know, we're an expression of it, we're an expression of this impulse of evolution. And now, we don't have to argue that fact. We just have to figure out how to talk about it. We need to really help different levels of consciousness, because what we do know is that there's this developmental stage of consciousness, and we have humans, the humanity is in all of those stages right now, you know? And so, we have the babies growing up, and we have the you know, the more advanced levels of consciousness that understand that unitive thing in an embodied state. So from that wide range of who we are as a species, without judging or blaming or shaming anyone, how do we hold this wholeness, this unified, connected, whole reality, and hold it from this broader perspective and the underpinnings of it so that everyone can really begin to feel it, experience it, and, and embody it in a new way of waking to it. You know, we've spent a lot of time and energy trying to wake people up because of the urgency of our times where people are saying, you know, hurry up, we got to make change. But when we really truly understand this, there's really no urgency. There's the imperative to hold it and hold it all and hold that higher vibrational frequency and allow everyone in there to attune to that higher level of frequency, that higher understanding of our universe.
2: And there is probably a place where we don't even need to hold it anymore because it holds itself and we get liberated inside it. And still where you started this is so critical because you are asking us to consider what if the dominant worldview of separation is what keeps us trapped inside this belief structure that doesn't sustain life. And when I thought about this, really most people, or many people at least, they don't even know that they are trapped in what you describe as a separation fallacy or a separation fantasy. They suffer the consequences of it, but they don't even know that they are in that paradigm. How do you tell the story of that alchemical transformation that begins to emerge when we release this paradigm of separation that you've been conversing about for the last decade?
3: Ooh, it's a question I asked myself when I was just a small child even and continue to ask that. It's the question that really wakes me up in the morning and fuels all my creative projects is how do we deliver that how can we create the conditions to help people understand where they are and right now i see two paths and two pathways that i've been working on and really expressing from because we have the spiritual pathway we have that direct experience the gnosis You know, the Gnostic in us that has a knowing, that has a direct experience of unity, of God, of the divine, of the sacred, of the wholeness. And that direct experience is one powerful pathway, but we can't make it happen. We can create the conditions for that, but most people that have never had that experience don't know that they even create the conditions for that. And then we have this pathway of science that's so important that I just got excited about, that, yeah, science is now showing us that we're a part of this universe that is so, I say, I'm going to say divinely creative, which brings the science and the spirituality back together, but is so whole and unitive that we can't separate it. So the thinker's that want that knowing can go down that pathway of science and start looking at the new science and the spiritual experiences there. So here we have these two. And yet, what you just asked me is, we still have those that are in that level of consciousness without a need to explore it at all. And we have those, a lot of empirical science is still in a very tribal consciousness of separation like it's you know that spiritual stuff is just woo woo and it doesn't belong in science and that science isn't real or you know this is what we believe in Newtonian physics and you know they're still in that place so it is a conundrum it's a conundrum how do we create that for those and what i'm sensing into is the arts and tapping into that creative and beautiful, that the beauty of it and the creativity and how do we use all of the arts through voice, through drama, through the visual arts, through dance, through, you know, we have so many different memes that are going out in the world and using technology. How do we connect the arts with technology to let that go out? How do we create the direct experience so you're in a theater and you feel it? When we feel it, we can't deny it. And even the world's greatest thinkers that are stuck in their head have been able to have those kinds of experiences and really feel it. And it's shifted their reality. So I'm playing with the arts now. How do we do this? How do we create that direct experience? And also using the breath and practice. You know, we've had a real beautiful time on our planet moving from the Eastern traditions to the West here, practicing yoga and meditation and body work like that. And now we have the science with HeartMath Institute teaching us how to come into that heart space and create greater coherence between the head and the heart. And when the mind heart are in the brain and the heart are in coherence, creates a greater coherent field and when you and i are in coherence together we create an even more beautiful coherent field between us among us and so again more ways of science bringing into the spirituality and this heart coherence is an incredible gift to humanity right now because it's easy to teach it's easy to experience and it brings us into that no-thingness that I mentioned, it brings us into that no-time, space, place, and we can really feel something when we go into that heart-resonant space together.
2: So the separation fallacy, we could trace this story in all sorts of ways to, back to even ancient times, but certainly to the sixteen hundred and to Descartes and to the primacy of doubt and the separation of religion and the scientific method. And you see through this, really, four or five centuries, time and again, reappearance of various streams that are seeking to reintroduce integration. And then we come to the middle of the 20th century. And here is how, at a very high level, how I'm telling the five waves of the last 60 years. And I'm curious to put this in front of you and for you to say, what would you add? What would you change? And where do you see it through the lens of your conversations with your guests? So I would describe transformation one point, you can call it the rise of the new age, right there at the 60s with the rise of post-modernity, breaking from traditional paradigms and, and structures. And I'm going to use the word differently to the way you use the word tribal. I'd call this Transformation 1.0 is tribal in nature. It's the hippies. It's the early famous gurus. It's transcendental meditation coming to the West with the Maharishi. It's the Beatles time. It's East meeting West. T group and some of the earlier communal, relational, that iteration is showing up. And the human potential movement is coined Ram Das, the rise of SLN and Finhorn. That's wave one. And it leads to what i term as Transformation 2.0, late 70s, early 80s, the institutional phase of beginning to get institutionalized in, in some places where we have diving, people diving deeper into Eastern and Western teachings and how to integrate these. And we have intensified group work and we have the rise of new intentional communities, the Omega Institute, and some of the early embrace of developmental, new developmental models, developmental framework teachers are bringing right there into the 80s. And we also have at this stage the first wave of trying to integrate the scientific narrative into those spiritual frameworks. And then I describe the Transformation 3.0, the enterprise Wave. The enterprise wave into the 90s, really all the way through perhaps to the dot com bust and 9 11, the rise of Burning Man, Silicon Valley integrating with certain aspects of the new age, the beginning of the mindfulness movement, and then we have the capitalist impulse and commercialism capturing the transformation. Impulse and the rise of the New Age enterprise with some luminary teachers and a business model around them. Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, Caroline Meese, Oprah for sure as really the evangelizer of many of these people, Eckhart Tolle, Byron Katie, Marion Williamson, Tony Robbins. And I don't know that they will all appreciate me calling all their names in one list, but that's all right. I'm simply observing that You have those people operating in that same time. And you also have the first and second wave of major disillusionments. People seeing that this is not really working, that it gets arrested around the guru trap and so on. And then you have the 4.0, which is the transition. And Ken Wilber appears in the 90s, but also is a prime character in what I call the distributed internet wave. The first decade of the 21st century, the Wild West, you have in the, the idealistic distributed phase of the internet with a run-up to the 08-09 crisis. And where we get the distributed phase, we also get the Yes We Can Obama meme and that generation, the Occupy movement, the Tea Party in the background, and the leaderless movement of change and transformation and the desert of this the early phase of the second decade of the 21st century which is where you come into working with your show so that's why i'm putting this background and i think the fifth wave the transformation 5.0 which i will describe as the beginning of a whole new integration is the run-up to the 2020s so coming through the social media Phase. The rise and fall of the IDW, the polarization capture, the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, the Sam Harris, and the integration now inside of all that of truly seeing, as you started to describe, science and evolutionary biology and the environment and the planet and spirituality, all of that is arising with the background of the meta-modern movement, Game B, the liminal web, now the post-doom spirituality, but I'm saying all of that is a background to what you are accessing as the essential wholeness that we can tap into as an authentic, embodied, emergent possibility at this time. What would you change, add, restate? I've never tried to map it in this way in any conversation before. So this is kind of how I thought into it this morning before our call. How would you restate or read to any of that?
3: I love how you've put it in this framework. Thank you. Genius. And I'll just make some observations. What was coming to me was this new age and the integrative model. It's like the integrating was still integrating parts. And I had a important talk yesterday and we talked about shifting this from the old mind body spirit wholeness and that integration integration is still we're still missing the point we're still in that model so maybe we'll see where the next one is and i can help you even frame the next one, because I do feel like we're moving into the next one. So prior to the pandemic, we were talking about wholeness from a narrative of separation. We're talking about wholeness through a lens of separation. So many people weren't in the embodiment of wholeness and unity. They were getting it and still coming from a place of separation. So now imagine... This is where I think we're going. We're not there yet, Aviv, and I hope we get there really soon. But now imagine our definition of wholeness isn't mind, body, spirit anymore. It really is understanding that we are nested within whole living systems, within a whole living system. So that our wholeness is, what would be the right word? There's an imperative that we understand our wholeness in relation to a greater whole. So that if the whole planet isn't healthy, I can't be healthy. And so my health depends on living for the good of the whole. So my wholeness is so interrelated, it's inseparable to the health of the water The health of the air, the health of the soil, vitalizing food, relationships with others, all culture, right? It's like the health and healing of the whole system includes this local whole, but it includes a cultural whole, healing our culture. It includes the planet and that as whole system's health. We can't leave anything out anymore. So we're moving from this integrative space of seeing ourselves, oh, mind, body, spirit, cool, I'll do yoga and meditate. And now we're into this responsibility of caring for the whole and cooperating with others. In evolution biology, I love this phrase, this one sentence, Elizabeth Satoris, an evolution biologist, says that as every species on the planet that's moved from late adolescence to early adulthood went from this Fierce, competitive, over consuming species that ran out of resources and took this leap into cooperative communities that care for all life. And I add future generations, because when we study superorganisms on the planet, it's not just all life now, it really is future generations. So we're moving from a species of late adolescence into early adulthood. And our imperative is to create cooperative communities that care for all life and future generations. It's living for the good of the whole. And it's just a part of who we are. It's an innate capacity that we have that we need to turn on and really understand it and live it into being.
2: So there is a sensed distinction you're making there because what you're describing is that we're leaning sensing, opening, discovering this more fully integrated throughout way of being and becoming, and we are sensing it and we are not quite there, this entire conversation is going to be us coming into that because it's a couple of years since you wrote Fractured Grace, and I want to still retrace some of the journey towards it. For example, here is something you say you write in Fractured Grace, you say we're heading toward complete transformation, but fail to see our direct responsibility and opportunity to consciously evolve, which is what you just spoke to. It is time to face our acute symptoms of brokenness, of the weight of humanity's shadow, and of the illusion that keeps us paralyzed in fear and separation. It's time to name our dysfunction and the endemic disease of a runaway ego, which creates separation consciousness and weakens our resolve, threatening our existence. It's time to diagnose the madness of individualistic, self-serving agendas and actions that are destroying us as individuals, families, nations, as a species and as a planet. And perhaps what you just offered now was, in a way, re-editing this to say, well, it's madness, but that's how we behaved in our teenage years as a species. We are now called to evolve into the the mature version of ourselves. What would you say now to how the sense of moving towards healing and wholeness and this maturation that you're sensing?
3: I think that whole conversation about our awareness is still really important because those who are in that place of separation don't know they're in separation. However, we have these three evolutionary drivers right before us. You know, 2020 brought this pandemic, which is this incredible evolutionary driver that's woken people, awakened people, whatever the correct word is there and then we have this evolutionary driver of our technology and you had already mentioned social media it's like technology has connected us everywhere so our technology is showing us that interconnectivity again and it's an evolutionary driver and then we have this evolution of consciousness you know we are waking as a planet we're waking as a species there are those that have woke to early adulthood like who really have experienced that so here we are, here we be, and I think that it's an imperative for us to walk backwards, like you said, like start walking backwards and watching it as we're moving toward the next decade of this reimagining and rethinking, because I think I'm getting really off on another tangent, and I'm going to go with it here because this is popping in. But when you ask that question, it's like, this is Whole systems transformation. This is also transmutation. So it's like, it's not like a step from here to here and we make these incremental steps and we change. Literally, things are radically changing and changing fast. And perhaps, like Elizabeth Satoris says, perhaps even from this DNA of these bodies that literally things are going to change radically. So how do we build cooperative communities that care for all life? It really is a whole new way of being, which asks us, why do we educate our kids the way we do? How could we do that better? Why do we exchange in commerce the way we do? How can we do that better? Why do we heal our bodies the way we do, how can we do that better? I mean, this is whole systems, transformation, and healing. And so you hold transformation and healing up at the same time, and it's like, okay, healing means to make whole again, but we're not going back to something. And that's been one of the illusions that even evolutionaries are talking about. It's like, oh, we've got to go back to wholeness. We got to go back to this unity. It's like, we're not going back. We literally are healing and transforming going forward to something brand new.
2: And one of the powerful messages, early in your book is the AIP message, the anything is possible message. And I sense that that's to do with that. It is curious, last year in a number of events that I led, this appeared, the idea that anything and everything is possible. How do you mean an experience inside this dramatic transformation with these drivers that you are describing? How do you experience the sense of anything is possible and the invitation that it makes?
3: Mm. Well, this is a really important piece because anything is possible also means the worst case scenarios are possible, right? Thinking about artificial intelligence, I spoke with a large group yesterday, and they are a multinational tech company that totally works in artificial intelligence to pulse the planet to see what's going on. And so, here we have the tech community saying, well, let's, you know, put in chips, let's da-da-da-da-da. It's like, we have so many innate capacities that don't need the technology. We don't need a chip implanted somewhere in here to do some of the things they're saying. We already have, we have it. it. We already have it. We already have it. It's an innate capacity. And in some, hasn't turned on yet. And- We have evolutionary capacities that are just now coming on board. Some of the most exciting things we do when we think anything is possible is when we put ourselves in connection with others in those cooperative communities and we learn how to harvest collective intelligence and how to harness the designing intelligence of the universe in co creation together, literally. Amazing things happen. Those are new evolutionary capacities that we didn't even knew existed before. So we were on this individual solo journey as an individual walking on the planet for millennia. And now, as we're moving into this imperative, we're turning on more of those innate capacities, but we're also initiating new evolutionary capacities I say, the sky's not the limit anymore. The cosmos is the limit. When we begin saying, what is possible? Literally, we need to think bigger than we've ever thought before. And so much of where we're at on the planet is about creating greater coherence among communities and holding. And I'm saying holding, you're right, we don't have to hold it anymore. But as I create greater coherence and we create coherence together. We enter that miracle zone so much more frequently and stay there. So what we can imagine is only the beginning because we can't even imagine everything that's coming. The next think about it like this too. I think about it like this. The last 50 years has been incredible. I mean, you could put some of that technology in your mapping that you just did. And we'd go, I said on this call, did I even have a cell phone back then? I don't remember. I had a landline and an answer machine, but I don't remember if even if I had a cell phone there, but it wasn't that long ago we didn't have these mobile devices with us. The last 50 years, things have changed so much. Imagine even if it was 10 times that amount of change in the next 50 years. I think it's going to be way more than that. The next 50 years are going to blow us away. So even go back to the last year and this next year, that change, that radical systemic change and technology and culturally, I mean, all of that is in process and our small minds can't even imagine.
2: You are inviting us to recognize that we've got to transcend the habituated or habitual mind and literally, truly go, as you said, beyond the sky's the limit, embrace the universe at large, the cosmos at large, which we have to, because the kind of complex, wicked problems that we are facing as humanity, we're not going to be able to solve within the paradigm that we applied through to this point. And it's curious, because in many ways we are already a new species, but we haven't really caught up to ourselves and to our own evolution. And part of the reason why we need to be in a conversation like this is to map and unfold and discover what it is that is actually going on. Because as you say, there is the collective participative intelligence that we unlock in the dialogue. And then there is how that becomes an active vessel or a womb through which, with which there is a designing intelligence that can reveal itself and through the process we it's not just that we just describe something that happens elsewhere as you started describing it's happening right here right now inside us so we are co-evolving co-creating co-enabling that process as it emerges through us
3: yeah those two words co-evolving and co-creating are so important for us. Barbara Marks Hubbard and Carolyn Anderson and Catherine Roski. Carolyn and Catherine wrote a book called The Co-Creator's Handbook. And Barbara Marks Hubbard was a mentor of theirs. And they've defined, I'm going to kind of put both of their definitions together, but I think it's so often we hear co-create and we think cooperate, collaborate. But literally what it's saying is, as I connect in with this designing intelligence of the universe and come together with others in that same space aligned with that designing intelligence of the universe that's where the universe comes in and co-creates through us and it's a whole different way of saying and really feeling experiencing co-creation that this isn't just a collaboration or cooperation, and we're coming in to get our collective intelligence. It's really bringing in a higher level of sourced intelligence amidst us, among us, within us.
2: So let's talk about Fractured Grace and how this story of Fractured Grace and your journey with writing Fractured Grace, because I have found that you have probably integrated five stories into one. There is the healing story, your healing story, number one. There is number two, the finding of self and the finding of an authentic voice, story two. There is, throughout the book, you are fashioning a meditative prayer and the way you work with yourself with your own meditative prayer and by way of inviting others into that, which is story three. And story four is the story of the evolution of humanity and the contemplative brief with all those questions that you fashion often in the summary of the chapters. And then through the entire book, there is story five, which is the story of the many faces of grace. So that's how I read the story. Now, I give you back my experience with Fractured Grace by way of asking you, tell me about the story of writing Fractured Grace and what that journey was like for you.
3: Thank you, Aviv. I really, really appreciate your thoughtful response to that and your reflection of those five stories. I agree. Those five stories are all in there. And I've kind of seen it as three that the book wrote me. So, But there are three narratives probably within the five stories because I started a couple different books years ago and it was what it was. And I struggled to find that voice. And you mentioned that I found it in that I thought I had to be scientific and academic and prove and cite and, you know, and it just never worked. And then I had an accident and snapped six bones in my leg, freak little accident, ended up with a full leg cast. And the book goes on to end a long healing journey of misdiagnosis and, you know, But when I sat in the chair, the book began to write me. So I had the healing journey, just like, here's healing, Julie. Start talking about healing because that's what's happening on the planet. And my healing could help others heal, but it also, we could look at the planet healing. So as I was writing the current story that I was going through, a couple of the other narratives were that my childhood mystical experiences began to weave through. And I couldn't not just story tell of past and then present and then future and the future of the planet and what was happening. So to me, it was, it wrote itself, but it was this nice narrative as I stayed focused and come back to center on what was happening in my healing journey and those struggles, and trying to understand it, and myself as a healer of why can't I just, you know, miraculously heal these bones. And so as I sat there, and then my lifetime started to weave through it as well, then I could see it in this larger context of humanity, and where we're at on this planet. So that's how it wrote itself. I kept coming back to center in this healing journey. And then those stories just wanted to weave through. It was fascinating. When I first started, I just started putting everything down on little index cards, everything, just this mind purging of everything that I thought would be in that book. just And then my mind wanted to organize it and create a journey. You know, my mind wanted to say, here's how you write a book and here's what wanted to happen. So like I did these exercises of, yeah, I want to talk about co-creation. I want to talk about these things. And then I put what I wanted to talk about away, put it all away. I still have the basket that it's in. It's on my altar at home. I just discovered it the other day because my granddaughter wanted to pull a quilt out and all my cards are still in this basket that I had right there. But I put it away and then the story wrote me and we've together the past, present, and future into this five stories that you refer to.
2: And you tell about that first dance with the ineffable at the age of four. When you write on that day, the thin veil between worlds was fractured. Tell me what occurred on that day.
3: Yeah, everything began there and put a bigger stake on it when I was 11 as a subsequent experience. But at the age of four, I had chronic tonsillitis as a child. I was just always had a sore throat and was doctoring. i was supposed to get a tonsillectomy. So my parents tell me. And one day after another bout of tonsillitis and doctoring, my mother put me down for a nap. I shouldn't say doctoring because by the time you hear the rest of the story, you'll say, how long was it before you were at the doctor? who knows my mother put me down for a nap and gave me claret's gum people our age might remember claret's it was a sore throat gum it was green and it was for sore throat and i had had a piece of claret's gum and was chewing it before my nap and later my mom yells from the other room and says julie wake up it's time to wake up and she's yelling at me from the other room and i can hear her and my eyes are open And she comes in and she sees my eyes open and me laying there and says, Julie, it's time to wake up. And I just lay there and I ignore her. And her cry gets a little more urgent as she's walking. Stop pretending. This isn't funny. It's time to wake up now. And I'm laying there watching her with my eyes and just moving around. But I'm not speaking and I'm not moving. In my mind as a four-year-old, I'm thinking, I'm pretending She told me to stop pretending. She said, stop pretending. This isn't funny. And so I also feel this shame, like I'm a bad person, like I'm naughty, I'm doing this thing. But then my mother noticed the green goo just kind of running out the side of my mouth. When she walked over the other side, she saw this green coming out of my mouth and then was alerted to, oh, something's really wrong. And it was then that I left my body and had a near-death experience. And my mother called my grandmother and my dad and rushed into the station wagon. And I just was hovering, watching them carry me out to the station wagon and going to the emergency room and had the whole experience there, but had this really profound near-death experience as a young child. And later, when I was much older, they said, do you remember that? You know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you. You just named it for me, you know, and I was a child much older, they I didn't know that I was that sick, but I was septic and they called it toxic poisoning, blood poisoning. Back then I became septic and my organs started shutting down and it had so much infection in my bloodstream that it was critically ill and probably should have died.
2: And so when you retrace and download the experience to the updated, updating process in you, how do you narrating your own mind, the influence, the impact of that experience. And the second experience that then happens later, I think you said at 11.
3: Yeah, at age 11. You know, from that moment, it was a multidimensional experience that opens that veil, you know, and it's like from that moment, I began having a very intimate relationship with that other realm and the divine. And I saw it as a God. I, with my upbringing and how I was raised, it was God that I would have a conversation with. You know, some people say angels, some people say, you know, but these other realms were there and I walked in both worlds as a child, not knowing that that wasn't normal and not understanding ordinary consciousness versus the multi-dimensional experiences. So, it was like this weaving through my life of that connection. And from that place, I saw the world very unitive and connected and the realms very unitive and connected. I didn't see the separation. And so, these experiences continued in childhood. And I'll just share that second experience, because that's what became so formative in where I'm at today. And who I am today is that I grew up between four and 11 wasn't pretty birth to four wasn't pretty, I think probably there was part of my soul that did not want to be in that life did not want to be in that body and did not want to live. So who knows, you know, I can speculate about that. The other important thing about four-year-old was my voice and, you know, laying there as a rag doll and not having, can't speak. And I literally grew up with just chronic throat things and that not finding my voice thing. So those patterns started early. But from four-year-old to 11, I endured way more chaos in my home life. There was physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental, emotional abuse, that there was domestic violence between my parents and step parent and there was just a lot of darkness in my childhood and poverty, food stamps, like the shame of going to the grocery store and having people stare at you and your mother's buying Pepsi or Coke and you know, giving food stamps and it just felt really yucky. So that was a part of my growing up and then I had this other multidimensional experience that Didn't resolve with that life experience. You know, it was a very different reality. And at age 11, I was in one of those spaces and just walked out outside, sat on the grass, said, I don't understand humanity. I don't get why they treat each other the way they do. How can they hurt each other like this? What, you know, I don't get it. And part of me was asking to go home. I just wanna go home. I just don't wanna be here. I don't get humans. So I was having that pleading with my God creator source as I saw it and having that dialogue. And it was that moment that literally I left my body, much like my near-death experience, had this out-of-body experience, and just watched as my body ascended and I saw little Julie sitting on the lawn, and then saw the neighborhood, and then went out into the cosmos. I had a very strong masculine presence with me, felt much like a Merlin kind of being, and we went out into the space, and it was like watching, we had a, the earth was like hovering above my hands, like here's the earth, and it was like this little snow globe, and Everything was nonverbal. Everything was like a Gnostic communication, just a very direct and just a direct knowing communication. I saw images of the planet around the earth of this. It was like a movie reel playing of all of what I was complaining about. I didn't understand humanity. And I, you know. Images of war and violence and starving children in Africa—it just broke my heart. So I had that going on. We had the outside world going on, and then we had inside the home of Julie Kroll going on. And so those images happened, and then literally I could see—you know—this Earth as one living system, and I could see these points of light as consciousness began to rise on the planet. These little points of light around earth little lights just lighting on the planet it was just so sweet and then they began to kind of connect and we kind of see that with communications advertising something now where we connect the light and that's what it was like it was like this little Mm. connections the lights began to connect all around the planet and then it began to weave and created this field around the planet and i could see it's hard to explain because it is the ineffable but i could see The future of humanity. I could see the future of the planet, and I could see my role in teaching and speaking from that place of conscious evolution of how we will wake, how we are waking, and what that creates. And the reels began to change, and we went to peace and unity and cooperation. And I could see these images around the earth as we're sitting there hovering in space. And from that moment, I just had this knowing in me. I returned to my body and just relaxed into the craziness a little different. Didn't really process it. I'm thinking back, you know, at 11, like, who do you talk to about that kind of experience? You know, I didn't have anyone to share that experience with and just kind of held it. But it was comforting, and I knew, I just knew my role. I knew I was called towards something at that time, and I could relax because I saw the ending. I saw the movie change. You know, I see that, and I wish I could give that to humanity, a lot of humanity seeing that first reel, you know, playing around the planet. But that was the 11-year-old.
2: Yeah, and you are remembering that and retelling that as you tell your healing story. And remembering is another important word in your story. So how is that then informing the remembering that you're going through of the significance of that inside your healing journey? How is it informing the healing process on the inside?
3: You know, it's incredibly informing. The shift of having That experience then was almost transformative in itself when I broke my leg. And the important piece for me was that I discovered that I was afraid to use my voice. I was afraid to speak out. I was afraid to say these things and share these things. I was afraid of being ridiculed. I was afraid of not. The, the mystic stayed in the closet and I had spent decades studying getting degrees going to college trying to be a respectable professional on this planet you know that the left brain rational logical person could listen to but what I learned when I broke my leg I had a guest on my show early so my show starts and a few months later I break my leg and Simran Singh was a guest and she talks about the signs of the universe and i had said in the break at that time i was on am radio and we took commercial breaks three times during the show and she said to me julie what were you doing this is how i broke my leg i was literally and i said this i was mindfully taking baby steps down the hill real carefully because it was a slippery grass slope So I said, I was mindfully, carefully taking baby steps down a hill. And she says, Julie, you're not supposed to be taking baby steps and you're not supposed to be taking small steps down a hill. You're supposed to be leaping forward. Why aren't you, you know, and she was like interpreting the universe, telling me, get on with it. And that it was almost as if that accident in the book activated that remembering in me and that confidence in me. And it was like, get on with it, Julie. Like, don't be afraid. Use your voice. Step out. And the world needs to hear this message. So it really was an activation.
2: And you write, how stunning, how magnificent our human bodies." have an extraordinary and complex design. And to think, creation knows how to repair and heal itself. The same intelligence that creates the body heals the body. And you're in a journey to access and facilitate and be with that intelligence as you go through the healing story and as you write Fractured Grace. Say more about that journey and about that discovery of allowing the healing process to unfold by itself?
3: Oh, allowing the healing process to unfold by itself. So the, the healer in me was like, why aren't I getting better faster? You know, I literally had to find a state of allowing. And when I would talk to guidance, it was like, no, don't go to healer. Don't do that yet. Don't do that. And it was such a frustrating isn't a strong enough word. It was really a frustrating process at first because I was ready to get up and go, you know, like, okay, a few weeks in my chair, and then I get to be up on crutches and go out to life. And it was like that message really wanted to come in and change every cell of my being. And if I could trust that intelligence that was there to heal my bones I could also trust that intelligence to guide every step there forward. And it really was like this initiation of sitting back and trusting and not pushing. I've learned that because of those experiences, you know, I've had a lifetime of mystical experiences and see the future. And because of that, I'm always like, Impatient, like, come on already. I always feel like I'm pulling this rope, like, come on already. Don't you get it? Like, come on already. Come on already. And that was an initiation to sit in the designing intelligence and allow and trust. And I'm still learning those lessons of patience because I still have that come on already thing, you know. I always, but what I've learned is this. Way shower part that is awakened in me does have to be 10 steps ahead. So it's okay to come back and forth those 10 steps, but my job is to be 10 steps ahead, knowing that what I'm thinking needs to be created here really isn't created till out there again. So it takes us back to the very first part of this interview when we're talking about walking backwards and instead of stepping in this no thing space, this liminal space, it's like now that intelligence is a little more integrated inside and I can take those steps with confidence and ease. Whereas even before I would be taking it, it's kind of like this, I have a coaster over there, there's this leap and the net will appear. You know, leap and the step will appear and now it's like okay the steps are appearing for me and there's that embodied remembering which is very very different than before
2: there is also in what you are describing there the awareness that every time you elevate to a higher level of integration and perception and realization it forces you and you narrate it in the story in many ways it forces you to through another cycle of going through the need to integrate not just the initial fractured issues you were grappling with, but how that uh, secondary and tertiary issues play out through the human story. And the message I decode in that part of the story is that indeed is the anatomy of the journey we make a step forward and upward and then we are caused to go on the ensoulment journey to embody and in the process transmogrify and integrate the new content that appeared that we couldn't quite see before but that is now coming online and into the light because of the new expansive state that we have been able to access
3: I love that. It's a beautiful way of talking about this layering. It feels like there's this layering, right? And this process that takes us to a new height and then it's integrated and then there's the new and it does feel like a cycle or a pattern or a layering. I also think as you speak that the process of imaginal cells coming together, it's like so there those are together and are creating organelles and doing their thing and now more are coming together and more are coming together so it's this processing and this layering and the integration is such an important part of the embodiment is you know we can't just keep that in our head and try to make sense out of it it just really is trusting that same designing intelligence that created my body, that heals my body, is evolving my consciousness. And there's the surrender.
2: So can you describe into this framework you offer at the end of the book where you talk about this three-stage healing process? And you describe actually the way it happens with fractured bones and the way it happens with injuries? And I have it in front of me, but I'd like for you to... Take us through it at a high level. What are these three stages? Because there is something in this way of seeing the save in this decade that we are unfolding that will probably continue to bring us new surprise. What are the three stages of the healing process? And why is it important for us to appreciate these three stages?
3: Mm, Thank you. These three stages with fractures and wounds, there are three stages. They call them different names in medical science. So I'll just use layman's terms for these process because they're very parallel, which amazed me when I started doing that research. So the very first stage of a fracture or wound is this inflammatory stage. And that's very common with both where literally the blood supply goes there. So there's extra oxygen at the site of the wound or the fracture, which also means there's swelling and heat. So just pause to say, we can see on the planet when something happens, this swelling of attention and people rushing to the scene of say, an earthquake, and we all go there immediately, and how can we help and do the search and rescue? And there's this inflammatory response. So even if we think about the Me Too movement, once that came into our awareness as this wound or psyche of who we were as a culture, the inflammatory response can be anger too, like this rage that comes at that. So this inflammatory stage is that first Part.
2: And it is so important to appreciate that that is the first phase because unless we appreciate it, we take the inflammatory r- response to be a condition unto itself that causes secondary issues and it recycles you back to sometimes worse condition than the initial. This is why it is so important to recognize phase one and phase two.
3: Yes. And pause. And without recognizing it, we create greater injury as well. We can create more injury. So thank you for pointing that out. I think that's brilliant. So with phase two, there's a remodeling stage. So in the fractured bones, the actual calcium and the bone comes in to try to mend the fractures. And with wounds, the skin begins to grow over and mend the Wound, And so that's that modeling. You call the
2: first reparative stage in the case of bones and in the case of the wound, it's the proliferation. So explain what happens in that second stage of the process.
3: So reparative and proliferation, literally it takes the unstable bone and it begins to come in and model it, but not remodel because you can't go there yet. It's literally sending the reparative contents to that area. So our body begins to do the weaving, to do the, imagine, you know, there's a tear, we begin to stitch the tear together, right, as if we're doing that. That's the reparative. The second stage is our body sends what it needs to that area to strengthen it again.
2: And it's the frustrating phase where we often experience that it's two steps forward, one and a half steps back. But because it has this cyclical process, because it needs to do the layer after layer after layer. And one day it feels like you have entered a a new phase, but then the following day it feels like you're half a step back. And we see that in organizational systems and we see that at the planetary theater at large. And then what happens as we move from the second to the third stage.
3: So another risk in the second stage is also that we feel so much better, we wanna rush out like, oh, we're done and we're not. So that's another risk that we take. So then the third stage is that remodeling. So that stage is where most of the substantial healing of skin on the wounds, the new skin, the scarring, the bone with all the calcium. And we see, you know, we all know what scars are. You know, there's this extra support that's come in. And then the third stage takes a much longer time. We don't even imagine this. But years after we have a broken bone, the body is working to remodel and to smooth that down and to make that be so that the scarring doesn't prevent other ligaments and soft tissues and things from doing what they do. It's a really important phase, and it takes way longer than the appearance of a wound or a fracture being healed.
2: So it's probably legitimate to say that we are forever healing, and we are probably in different aspects of ourselves in all three phases all at the same time. And certainly that is the case when we look at humanity at large. We are always Beautiful. in somewhere in an inflammatory phase, maybe not always in our personal lives. But there are times when we are out of that phase, but there is something about accepting that this journey of healing is part of the nature of life. And this is one of the natures I'm experiencing in Fractured Grace and one of the faces of grace that I'm experiencing through your narrative. It's the acceptance as one of the faces of grace.
3: Mm, yes, I love that acceptance, the allowing and the acceptance is an important piece. And you know, we haven't even talked about illness. So perhaps we are always in a continual healing process, because not only a wound or a fracture, but a virus or a bacterial infection creates another healing response. And we know there's inflammation, I got a sore throat, my lymph nodes are swollen, and the body begins. So I haven't even talked about that kind of healing. But perhaps we are in a constant state of healing that our body has that much intelligence that it's warding off and balancing our immune system and taking care of things. And I think it's a great invitation for us to think about our world in that continual healing process.
2: What is the function of tears and of cathartic sobbing inside the Mm. healing process?
3: Wow, you caught me speechless. This is a great question, because there's so much there that's important.
2: I could feel in the book, when are you literally writing, and that is what accompanies the purging process.
3: Exactly, yes. So the purging part, when you're talking about tears and then sobbing with the cathartic release, literally, so from a creative space, I teach this a lot, and I've had a program called Beautiful Compost, and we do purge journaling. And if we think about purging, you think about just letting go. You don't, purging as in throwing up or purging as in diarrhea, you don't save that contents and do something with it. Literally, it's released and let go and we can put things on a compost pile and they break down and they become nourishing to us in a whole new way. Tears are like that purge. It's like we have so much content inside all the time, purging, the purge journaling, but we also have that emotional congestion and that emotional content that we store as well. And so the tears and the the sobbing part and that emotional release is just as important as that mental release of just letting go. And both of them go together in the purge journaling because sometimes we're like just barely crying and sometimes we're really angry and we're mad and we're, we're getting rid of that content, both mental, emotional, spiritual content and you know sometimes we're just sobbing and we can't even put the pen on the paper because we're so into those tears but it's cleansing and clarifying
2: it's like yeah and the chemical composition of the tears alters with the nature and the energetic quality of the tears because self-pity or pain or frustration or joy or being moved by something beautiful, each of those will produce, it appears as though it's the same, but it's not the same. They actually induce a different chemistry out of your brain. And literally, if you tasted those tears, they will have a different taste because they are composed differently in the energetic essence that permeates that process. So being attuned and allowing that is part of the healing and enabling process.
3: It opens a whole beautiful conversation, doesn't it? Of just even the healing of the waters on the planet and the healing. If our bodies are made of 99 point, however much water, some people say 86 or 87, but most people will say 99% water. Imagine the healing on the planet and just the correlation between our tears. I love that you bring that shift in chemistry with the, Condition of the tears being released. Energetically, we know emotion feels different. We know what an angry tear feels like. We know what the tear of awe and beauty feels like. And we know what that sob of grief feels like. And so I love imagining that with our waters on the planet and how we can heal one another from that understanding and that wisdom of the waters being encoded like this. It's the amazing thing to ponder.
2: Because in what you're describing, Julie, there is that sense that you can sometime experience a very personal grief, but you can also, the human has this capacity to process the grief of another or the grief of another time. And as you do, there is part of the transmogrifying, transmuting of that energetic content in service for the release and the reintegration and the reemergence of whatever that experience or episode. And there are no shortage of opportunities on the planet right now to offer that service. We are approaching the end of our time, but I'd like to just maybe one or two more areas to explore. You write. We are the dance of integration, of intellect and intuition communing in a sacred unity, of head and heart engaging in synergistic play, of masculine and feminine dancing as one, of body and spirit merging gracefully, and of you and me interbeing as whole. How do you experience this awesome merging, integration of that creative, masculine and feminine. This is one area I've been so afraid to ever approach in conversation because I feel that when we are able to heal this one on the planet, the unlock creative power, what can actually emerge, is so extraordinary. So in the way you describe the merging and the integration of the masculine and the feminine powers That is the big unlock potential for humanity. Talk to me, describe that and the way you experience those dimensions.
3: You know, there are so many wonderful thinkers on the planet that do believe this is the key moving forward. This is the one. So your intuition is spot on with so many thinkers that say, let's do this one. You know, yesterday I had a talk and one of the questions Was this, which was fascinating. We were talking about showing up in the wholeness of who we are. And this man, a very masculine man, said, I try to bring my tenderness to work. I try to bring my vulnerability and my whole self. And I try to integrate my masculine and my feminine. But if I show up, I always have to say, but don't violate my boundaries, because it doesn't mean that I'm being feminine, you could push me over. It doesn't mean I'm weak and vulnerable. And he said, I'm really tired of saying that to people. But I feel like I have to share that when I'm being feminine, in my feminine and balancing my feminine masculine. If I show that side of me, I feel vulnerable and weak. So then I'm telling people, don't treat me like I'm vulnerable and weak. And it was a fascinating thing to hear that question because I just heard that morning in another interview where a woman was saying, I can't be a strong feminine person. I can't, if I go to the workplace and I am a strong masculine woman, then I'm called the B word. And there's something wrong with me. And it was fascinating that I heard both those on the same day. As men try to step into the balance of masculine-feminine, as women try to step into the balance of masculine-feminine, it is weird. And what I describe is when, so say I'm feminine and I'm over here, and as a woman, I'm mostly feminine, and I swing to embrace my masculine. Sometimes it feels like the swing goes way over here. And then I swing back and I'm practicing. And that feels so like 180 degrees opposite, right? It feels so foreign to us. But the key is, and I always like to, when I feel polarization, I always bring the third element of spirit in to resolve the duality, to resolve the polarization. And if we bring that wholeness into masculine, feminine, it can help us to have balance because the swinging makes us feel crazy and we're not this or that it's not an either or so as we stepping into our masculine feminine qualities and learning to balance as this species and get out of our heads about it but when we bring the divine in when we bring that third force in it brings us more into wholeness so we see that all of it's kind of important. It's like there's no separation and there's no polarization. It's not two points. So I'll just show this one more thing that's coming through my head at this time because I love this. One time I asked Source, which I never stopped to those conversations since I was four years old, and I said, help me understand polarization. And I wrote about an experience in the book of the very heated political debates of 2016 and having a family member and just come out and get so angry. And I was so hurt. And I went to bed that night. I'm like, help me understand this polarization. And what I saw was fascinating, but I'm going to simplify it because this one image is so profound to me is a Mobius strip. So if we take a piece of paper and, you know, a lot of times we take this linear and there's these two points and we're so polar opposite, right? They're just two polar. And then, so if we take the Mobius strip and we say one side is masculine, one side's feminine. So imagine coloring one side, a yellow highlighter and the other side's white, you know, whatever. So we're thinking it's opposite. It's different. And if we take the Mobius strip and we just twist it once and tape it together, there's this continual journey, this experience that never leaves either of those. It's like the feminine moves into the masculine, and the masculine moves into the feminine, and we're sitting here moving along that Mobius strip, and we never leave it. We don't have to flip from one side to the other side. We don't have this continuum that it's just moves from here to here. It becomes this inversion of all our polarities on the planet, all of our polarities, from conservative right wing to liberal left, all of them invert high, low, cold, hot, anything we want to look at, intellect, spirit. And that Mobius strip just moves us in this inverted expression of all of it, and it can become whole within us.
2: And the way I experience what you're describing is the, that additional third dimension that you describe the spirit. I also see this as a double helix with a vertical dimension because there is the invitation that I sense in the story of that man. The two episodes of yesterday showed up on your screen that part of the escape and transcendence of polarity is that we can reach for this other side at a different elevation. Yes, at a different elevation. So for example, and it's very tricky when I use words, because anytime I use words, it locks us, do you mean that this is how men are, and this would be the case with women? No, I'm talking about the archetypal feminine and masculine energy. So for when she says, I want to embrace the masculine the way I hear this is not the harsh, aggressive, attacking at all. Now, it's I'm embracing my higher capacity to offer clarity of purpose, alignment, sense of directionality. That's the archetypal masculine nature. When I say, and I'm reaching for the embrace of the feminine nature, I'm saying, I'm reaching for the creative embracing, holding capacity. So those are forever manifesting in this movement that you are describing, always forever at a higher and a higher dimension of the nature. So we continue to unfold or unlock their growing potential. And when we do that, the invitation I just heard in the way you responded to this group yesterday, and what you offered is, we are actually here. And the way we heal each other is we release the higher possibility of the people we interact with, and we can all reach for the masculine and the feminine potential. As you're describing, we are never not inside the unified field that embraces and enables both of those energies to work through us.
3: Yeah. We're never not. My advice to the one man was to show up, Mm. to be fully embodied and be all of that, to be his whole self, to be the feminine, masculine expression of him, like of Julie, of Aviv, and to come and to show up, even if I might not express in a vulnerable way in this workplace that doesn't feel safe My vibrational frequency of that integrated whole, that frequency, just like you're saying, it's like it transcends, right? It raises an octave. We're really informing the field. So if I can come up and come to work and show up as my whole self, even if I'm not speaking from a more feminine or masculine, the male or the female, but show up as my whole self, and raise that vibrational frequency. What we know from physics is, is, is everything in the field will attune to that higher level. So we're inviting even the workplace to attune to that and to transcend and include where we've been to move into what we haven't even envisioned as possible yet.
2: My final two questions. These words you use, radiant light, unbounded joy... I mean what for you?
3: Mm. Wow, it's funny how time perhaps will evolve, even how I experience radiant light and abundant joy. Is that how you said that?
2: Unbounded, I think, joy is what you
3: Unbounded joy. Yeah, not abundant, unbounded. Literally, I'm surprising myself in that this last year, when I said I've been in this real formative, liminal, creative space. The prior Julie would have defined unbounded joy by social norms. And I think I had this expectation, number one, I was gonna be the best darn mom on the planet and giving birth and watching my children. I mean, that was like it, you know, I had so much unbounded joy. And I assumed, you know, being a grandparent would be the same kind of thing. It's like I have no alignment with those social norms anymore. It's like a prior mental definition of radiant light and unbounded joy has disappeared. And the surprise and the delight of what radiates from within is it. It's like that beautiful sunrise or that beautiful sunset. It's like a new bloom of a flower emerging from the ground. There's just this trust in this designing intelligence that moves through me into that unbounded joy and radiant light now. In the past, I would see this you know light coming from the other realms and coming in the central channel and how we've tried to describe things for you know, decades of exploration into the new age. None of that is it mm. anymore. There's just this eminence of radiant light it yes, doesn't yes. come from anywhere or go to anywhere. It just is.
2: So I have a special request for the closing round of our conversation, which is that I'd like you to, speak your uncensored words to, well, to my near-to-be three-year-old granddaughter, but not just to her, but to the toddlers of the world. Because every morning when I get up and I have a, several practices that I go through, but one of the things that I do every day is I talk to, in my thoughts, to the toddlers of this world. First, I speak to them because when I speak to them, it connects me to my purpose. And it tethers me to what I'm here to do for the rest of this planetary journey. And I also want to reassure them that with are busting our sides. We're, we're doing the best we can. They're, they're not left on their own. Although, when they look at many of the adults around, they can feel lonely the way you felt lonely. When you, at the age of four, and. This little two-year-old, she is the kindest, gentlest being I've ever come across. I'm sure I'm not the first grandparent to say something like this, but it's not just her. It's what I sense and feel is the potential and the significance of yeah, new souls coming here, souls and spirits coming here for the planetary journey. So I want you to Speak to them and to their future, whatever it is you feel like saying as a closing message for us today.
3: Thank you. Just as an observation when you were speaking. I'm writing letters to my granddaughter who's four. And as you were speaking, I was thinking of how different those letters are for her than how I would speak to the four-year-old inside of me,
1: mm.
3: which is so interesting. And the thing that I love about my granddaughter is that she's a precocious four-year-old who loves all the Disney movies and can sing and belt out the words to all of these amazing songs. And so it reminds me of the message for our littles that staying in the mystery and the discovery is such a sacred place. And when we can really tune into those butterflies in the yard and follow them back to the flowers and watch them and just be with them. We're learning. And the whole idea, I mean, I could go into all kinds of teaching tools like I have with my granddaughter who I'm writing these letters to for my next book. But the thing that's precious to All of us as two and three and four-year-olds is relaxing into that allowing space and play. This is one of my lessons that I didn't get. I didn't learn. And as we're allowing these toddlers to just be in their natural state of being and playing, everything is perfect and enough. There's nothing to change. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to be frightened about or be worried about. So, yeah, little toddlers, like, you are enough and you are perfect. And the world may look scary to the big people right now. To most of our littles, it doesn't look scary. And there's some wisdom there for the big people that are tuning to the big scary things
2: Mm. thank you stay in the mystery relax into the playground of living and of being yourself you are enough you are everything that you need to be thank you
3: thank you
1: Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.